Hello and welcome to Somewhere to Believe in, a brand new podcast from the people who bring you Greenbelt Festival. I'm Paul, I'm the creative director and one of your hosts for this podcast. Hello, I'm Catherine and I'm the programme manager at Greenbelt and your other host of the Somewhere to Believe in podcast. And if you love small talk and big ideas, then this podcast is for you. Hey, so, episode two. How are you doing, Catherine? I'm all right. I've just finished my half an hour lunchtime YouTube workout at home. Can you give me any more details? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. I do a half an hour hit workout, high intensity workout that I've been doing on YouTube for the past eight weeks. High intensity. Does That sounds like it might hurt. Yeah, I've had I've had a few injuries, three injuries since doing it. <laughs> Is this a, a new part of your routine that you've uh, built into your life since um, this madness of the pandemic descended? Yeah, you've got to keep yourself busy, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. But also, you know what? I'm really enjoying getting strong there's something really great about getting physically strong I've never wanted to do it before but now I want to get really strong (laughs) you're slightly scaring me but I'm (laughs) exhilarated at the same time A lockdown must be lifting because I've just sent one of my twins off to school for a meetup with his uh, tutor group uh, just for 45 minutes. They're going to socially distance in the main school hall. So it'll be 30 little people sort of as far apart from each other as they can get. He's gone off with his little notepad and pen. I asked him if he still knew the way and he, he assured me that he did. So that, that feels like a really significant moment because I've had four boys just mooching around at home, sort of making a vague attempt at um, logging on and engaging with their lessons, but mainly playing Fortnite. Yeah, I think lockdown is easing, Paul, because I went to the pub. You, what? Mm-hmm. Did you have to book an appointment or how, did you get in? I didn't, and I did get in. And I thought it was going to be a really busy pub experience, so I was planning to go there, have a look, and then swiftly leave. But no, it was it was actually really nice. It was quiet. We were all distanced. They did table service, so you didn't have to go to the bar. Yeah, it was fine. I think that's the thing, isn't it? That lockdown's easing, opportunities are coming back in, things are, are sort of flexing and opening. But at the same time, there's this psychology amongst many of us where we're quite cautious and we're nervous. So in a way... It's not that hundreds of thousands of us are going to take advantage of these opportunities straight away, I guess. No, but that's what you hear, isn't it? That's that's all I heard on social media and in the news is just like scenes of people drunken outside pubs and masses of crowds. And I mean, I'm sure that is happening. I haven't seen it yet, though. I've seen people being really sensible and and respecting each other's distance. Yeah, I must admit that's been my experience too, although I've, I rarely go out. But um, I think that, you know, that that's where it's weird, isn't it? The news and the media and the way we receive it. I mean, whoever came up with the idea of dubbing it Super Saturday and then expected it all to go calmly really needs a little talking to, I think. I'll tell you what, there's only one Super Saturday this summer and that's going to be um, Wild at Home, Greenbelt Festival, 29th of August. Oh, that's a good segue. Do you like that? Yeah. <laughs> I've been working on that all morning, Catherine. <laughs> So things are changing. Anything else caught your eye in the news this week, Catherine? 
I try not to watch the news, Paul. I haven't watched it for a few years. And you guys know in the office, because I rarely know when anything is happening, you have to tell me. People tell me what's going on. It's not like I'm completely oblivious to the world. I just try and find different sources to get my information from. It's just made me a lot calmer. I found that the news was getting me really down. And especially working for Greenbelt, you know, you have to dig deep into lots of different social justice issues and you have to know a lot about it, which can be hard at times that can get you down and then i think going home and watching the news would just tip me over the edge to be honest one thing that did come up in the news this week is um that caught us out and caught us up in a way in the in our last podcast last week we were talking about the way that the arts and culture sector had been overlooked by the government in terms of its support and then hey presto government announced uh, it's a big big grant package uh, in support of arts and cultural venues up and down the country so we need to applaud that we need to say that's a really really good thing i think for you and i the jury is still out in terms of festivals isn't it? Yeah, I think that we haven't got the detail of that out yet. So I think we'll see. I mean, that's it's a great step. It's a great that the arts have been acknowledged as something that should be supported. And we'll see what happens next. Watch this space. So we really want to hear from you this summer as we release these podcast episodes each week. We want to know what you think. Uh, we want to know uh, what you're going to be missing. And you can let us know on our social media channels. We're at Greenbelt Festival on Facebook and Instagram. And we're just at Greenbelt on Twitter. And you can email us at stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. And of course, now that we've got the podcast up and running and we're, this is our second episode, you can leave reviews on your podcast platform of choice ideally nice ones but Catherine what have we been hearing from people in this last week so we've been asking some questions on our social media about what will people miss not having Greenbelt Festival happen this year and I've got some answers for you Paul oh yeah I want to know the answer I always want to know what is the answer not one answer but there is a few different answers so people are missing meeting up with their friends that they only see at the festival arriving on site and knowing that they are home Oh, nice. Uh, sitting under the trees in earshot of the canopy, which is uh, our second music venue we have on site. This is a good one. Okay, okay. The comfort and the disturbance. What do you think of that? Well, Paul, we programmed the festival together. And I think that that's quite a good description of how we try and programme what the content that we try and program because we want we don't want it to be an echo chamber of everybody just hearing stuff that they already know if we're going to be a truly open and social justice and forward-thinking festival then we have to challenge i mean that's part of our role isn't it to strike that balance between providing our audience with the things that they are comfortable and familiar with but also really putting in the work and the miles and doing the visiting around and seeing shows so that we bring work and artistry to people that they won't have encountered before and will cause them to feel perhaps even uncomfortable when they first encounter it. Yeah, I think if we get through a year where people aren't writing into the festival talking about how uncomfortable they are by our choices or querying our choices or asking for explanations for the stuff that we programme, I think that's us not doing a very good job. The day that that doesn't happen... Probably the day we need to step down. I think that Greenbelt is about um, provoking more questions than it is uh, giving answers. Okay, you might be amongst like-minded people broadly, but it's our job as programmers to try and provide 
everyone who comes with a really broad range of options and definitely stuff that will stretch people and take them out of their comfort zones. Take us as programmers out of our comfort zone. I can remember conversations, Catherine, that you, we've had with each other where we've really sort of almost sucked through our teeth and thought, oh, can we can we really do that? Can we can we do that at Greenbelt? We do that at least a few times each year, I think. I like the fact that when we do that, one of us is doing that. Oh, can we? And the other one is saying, of course we can. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it, it's not always the same person who's in those roles. I think that um, I think that's why we've enjoyed working together and making the festival is I feel like we stretch each other. And in that, I hope that we in turn are then able to stretch our audience because stretch is good, isn't it? I mean, stress is bad stretch is good can you remember any examples over the last few years that um, you've programmed where you've thought oh this is a really a little bit on the edge i'm not sure how comfortable people are going to feel with this but then afterwards you've looked back and you've thought yes that was the right thing to do we were going to have this session around body issue at the festival and we decided in the office we were chatting a lot about it and we decided in the office that the only real way of facing people's body issues is just to get a lot of people naked just to show a lot of naked bodies show how everybody is different and nothing is the right way nothing is the wrong way and just surround people with those images of naked bodies and let's chat about it so we put out this call to our volunteers asking for women who were prepared to do it and I was really nervous because nudity is a thing that not not a lot of people are really comfortable with and we had to do it very privately and we had to really respect everybody in the operation in the situation but people loved it the women themselves had such a good time doing it Um, I think that everybody that was involved ended up getting their kit off and having photos taken and the sessions themselves were so popular that we had to do two of them okay so what have we got lined up in this episode paul in today's episode we are going to be meeting and talking with amanda cozy mcquashi who is the ceo at christian aid christian aid are our main festival partner and they have been since the 1990s Amanda came and spoke at the festival in 2018 as a relatively new CEO at Christian Aid. We loved her talk and what she had to say, and we thought that it would be really, really interesting to get to know her better and to get to ask her all the questions about Christian Aid and its work, especially in this really, really challenging year. I'm nervous. We're nervous. <laughs> <laughs> we're nervous. We've been trying to read your CV and your background and we're, we're sort of slightly in awe. So we're, we're yes, very nervous. Very in awe. <laughs> oh, yeah. no. Well, just know that I'm very nervous. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, thank you no, so much for, for having me on the, on, the, on the show. Where are we speaking to you today, Amanda? I'm in West Byfleet today. I'm at home. Um, working from home like everybody else in these days of uh, COVID. And how are you finding that? I think it's been quite interesting. It's been a learning curve, isn't it? Um, I think at the beginning, it was a bit tense, working all hours, having meetings uh, from uh, 7 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. But after three months of doing this, it feels like we have found finally a good balance. 
has that um, opened up new challenges to the way that you're working, especially because you're working so globally um, and maybe with um, communities that uh, wouldn't have a home office set up or you, it would be harder to connect with in that way? I think it has raised, um, I think there are both challenges and, and opportunities. I think if I start with the opportunities um, or the, the positive things is that uh, what we're hearing is that people are talking more to each, with each other. So the the fact that you're not in the same office is forcing people to reach out to one another more horizontally across the organization rather than through the hierarchy of you know managers, man, you know senior managers, directors, and so on. And that's good. That's really good. Um, and also for some people who were struggling, especially for example in uh, uh, who work in London, who who had to fight through the commute every morning, uh, that stress has been removed. Uh, but uh, in terms of uh, the challenges in terms of work in some of our countries, we work in countries where, for example, electricity is an issue, power access to power is an issue, connectivity is a problem. So to facilitate some of our staff working from home, we've had to support them with solar banks, solar power, um, trying to ensure that they have enough data so that they can actually access the internet, access the work and be able to connect with the rest of, um, of, of members of staff. And sometimes even our staff in country connecting with our partners uh, in the same country has been challenging. Uh, especially when there was lockdown because they couldn't, because our work really, um, uh, if we're doing it very well, we need to be in the communities. We need to be speaking to those people who are being affected. We need to see them. Um, when we want to give things like soap, uh, make sure that they have water, we need to go out there. And and so it has been challenging to do that, um, especially in those countries where those communities that, you know they need water. If you're talking about the refugees in Cox's Bazaar, for example, they need water, right? So if the water is not there, how are they even going to protect themselves against COVID-19? Um, so those type of things have been challenging. So I, I think I was wondering um, why you're called Christian Aid and whether it's because of your uh, values as a company or whether it's you're going, the work that you're doing on the ground in different countries is around um, working with communities that are Christian themselves or whether you're opening yourself up to anybody that needs help. When Christian Aid was uh, established in uh, 75 years ago, it was at a time um, after the World War, it was at a time when uh, there was great need both here in the UK and um, in other countries. And uh, agencies were being, uh, I think there were quite a number of agencies that uh, came up uh, to support those that had been impacted on, those that were suffering, those that uh, had were in humanitarian crisis. Christian Aid was the church's response to that. So 41 denominations came together um, uh, from the British and Irish churches and said, what are we going to do as people of faith? And so that's where the Christian comes from, our values that come from the Christian faith. But when you look at the values, uh, the Christian faith doesn't hold monopoly on those values. And it's really important that, um, that uh, people hear that. And when we go out to different countries to work, we don't offer our service only to people of faith or to Christian organizations. We, of, we meet people at their point of need. We don't ask 
Do you believe in God? Don't you believe in God? Are you a person of faith? That is not what we are there for. What we are there for is if you're in a humanitarian crisis, you are internally displaced, um, uh, you need us, we will be there and we will work with you and we will respond. I think that's a, a very um, beautiful answer and highlights why Greenbelt and Christian Aid are such a good fit for each other. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we've wrestled over the years with that word Christian. Uh, yes. Our heritage in some ways is the same. We emerged from the fringes of churches at the same time, mass festival, big festival gatherings were emerging. Um, but over the years, the word Christian has sometimes proved to be not very helpful for us in terms of what the space we're trying to make. Um, so we have a slightly different uh, dirt journey there. Yes. I wonder if, um, Amanda, just before we listen to the, the, the excerpt of the talk that we're going to listen to together, um, what was it like coming to Greenbelt in 2018 um, for the first time? What, what were your impressions of being with us for that day? I think it was surreal. I don't know what I was expecting because I'd never been there. And, um, you know, in a way, it's also connected to what you said in terms of that word Christian, right? Um, I, I have to say that, you know, coming to Greenbelt and realizing that there were so many people of faith, of different faiths and different persuasions under one umbrella and, um being in a place like that and being able to openly speak about my faith and how it connects to the issues of climate justice, development, and that, you know, I could speak freely about it. It's not confined to just me speaking about it in a church, but speak about those shared concerns that we all have at, at, at Greenbelt. I think it felt really good. But I'll tell you what the best moment for me was. I think the best moment was realizing just how many young people were there, you know. Um, and uh, I remember this uh, this guy, uh, I, I'm embarrassed to say that I can't remember his name, but I just remember how he made me feel. You know, I had given my talk and then he came up to me and he said, you know what, um, I really liked what you said. Thank you for um, for the talk about um, about the people, you know, the visits, the program visits that you've made. And, um, and it's really just good to know that there are organizations like yourselves uh, going out there and uh, and that you can come to Greenbelt and talk about this. And he says, I want to be more engaged. Right. Uh, and I remember that I then connected him with my the team that was the Christian aid team that were there. But how he made me feel is something that I've taken away from Greenbelt as something that was just, you know, good validation, affirmation, and knowing that I was in a space with people who wanted a better world. They wanted to see a better world all around. Oh, thanks. And thanks to Christian Aid for you've been in partnership with us for, for many, many, many years, helping us to make that space. And we're, we're incredibly grateful. Um, as Catherine said, it's a, it's a partnership that works really well. Um, shall we take this opportunity to listen to the extract of the talk, which is like the, the opening of your talk that you gave in 2018, and then, and then dig into that a little bit with you? This session on uh, uprooted, overlooked and ignored is really thinking about those people who have been uprooted from their homes, those people who are being overlooked uh, by the policies, by the politics of the day, and being ignored by the rules, agreements, 
and uh, international regulations that really should be there to safeguard um, the lives and dignity of individuals across the divide, across the world, regardless of gender, regardless of sexuality, regardless of uh, creed, color, or where you come from, or your economic status. And as you heard, I've only been in the job uh, five months now, um, and uh, I'm still in it, so that's good news. <laughs> and uh, I have to say that um, even if it's a daunting job to, to take on, I'm really enjoying it because of the fact that uh, the members of staff that I'm working with at Christian Aid are extraordinary human beings. They've really been very supportive of me. Thank you. And uh, I've also had a chance to go around and meet the supporters across the country. And every time you feel discouraged, when you meet them and they've come out, come rain or sunshine, you really feel like, yes, this is something that I want to do. This is a vocation. It's a calling. And it's something that many of us are putting our minds and resources to. So before I get to the actual issues of uh, internally displaced people, I just want to, I want to start this conversation on a really positive note. Over the last few months, I've had an opportunity to go out to try to understand what do we actually do in the field. When we say that we are supporting people, individuals, and communities in poor countries, what does it look like? I've been working in development for over, for almost 30 years, and I know that there are good projects, I know that the bad project. So I wanted to get a first-hand experience of what Christian Aid is doing on the ground. I didn't want to come here and talk about something that I didn't see. I didn't want to come here and talk about things that I had just read. So I visited a number of our programs. I went to Bangladesh, where the Rohingya are, in the camps where Christian Aid is managing some of the one of the camps. I talked to the individuals there. I talked to the women who have to defend themselves from sexual assault and sexual violence on a daily basis. I talked to the women who have to protect their daughters, their 14, 15, 12-year-old daughters, from, um, from violence. I talked to the men uh, who are qualified doctors but cannot work. They don't have their papers anymore. They're separated from their families, and uh, they are not allowed to work. I talked to the elderly. 92-year-old, 96-year-old, who can no longer walk to, uh, to the relief camp to actually go and collect any food, medication, any water, and they've been separated from their children and from their grandchildren. And they have to go out there and actually try and get relief for themselves. And they're depending and relying on the support from their neighbors, from the Christian Aid volunteers who are there, from the Christian Aid community mobilizers. The one thing that I got from Bangladesh when I visited a Jamtoli camp was very clear to me that even amidst all these challenges, these people were determined. They were determined to learn new skills. They were determined to get new experiences. And they were determined to try and find a way in which they can be independent, in which they can look after themselves. They can look after their families. They can feed themselves, send their children to school, have good health care. They were not just looking to being supported. They really want to be able to say that, you know, I am, I've got dignity in my life. 
And that dignity comes from being able to do things for myself. I went to Kenya. I visited a number of, uh, of families there, a number of households. I looked at the approach that Christian Aid is taking. And I was really, really uh, encouraged to find that Christian Aid is on the ground. We don't go in there with solutions. We go in there and say to the community, what are the issues that you're facing? And they say, we have drought, food insecurity, our crops can't grow anymore, our livestock are, are suffering or dying, and we, can, we don't have water. So I went to a particular community, they don't have water, and they're trying to come up with some rock catchment, um, some water catchment, uh, using the rocks that they have there, and it's quite uh, ingenuous. But again, the same thing, the same thread came across for me. These are people who really know and want to do things for themselves. They want to be independent. They don't want to be perpetually dependent. They want to be resilient. And I walked away from those visits. I could tell you story after story. You know, I met uh, a, a woman called um, Betha. Betha. She was so excited. I was wondering, why is she so excited? She's living in such a poor community. But she was so excited because she said, this used to be my house. It used to be one room. I've been working on so using solar energy to better myself, to grow better crops, to do more for myself. I'm now able to send my children to school. I have built a new house. So she's kept, she's kept the ruins of the one-roomed house to remind herself of where she came from. Why am I telling you these stories? when I started off by saying we'll be talking about internally displaced people, you might be wondering, might be thinking, oh, she's going on a bit. But I'm telling you this because the one thing that I discovered, whether it was in Bangladesh, Kenya, Zimbabwe, Malawi, these are the four places that I've been to, is one common thing. We are all human beings. We all want very similar things. We want to be respected. We want to be able to have food on our table. We want to be able to provide for our families and we're not just looking for handouts. Wow. Well, I think one thing we were wondering, Amanda, is how you uh, deal with that, um, both as on a personal level and within the organisation, because it feels overwhelming. Um, and I wondered how you hold on to that inspiration that was clearly coming through in the talk excerpt that we listened to, where you're so motivated that you have a vocation to work with people, to um, help them achieve their full humanity and their full dignity and their full worth. But in the face of so much need, how how do you personally and within Christian Aid, how do you deal with that? I, I would I'm just being honest, I th I'd find it really difficult to be able to get my hands around that and, and cope with it, I think. I think following your honesty, I think that, you know, it is difficult. I, well, you know, on a personal level, um, there are times when you do get home or you're at home, you've been in one meeting after another, especially the times when there's 
too too much bad news, you know, um, and we can talk about that um, about later if you want. But, you know, when you get governments making announcements, when you get uh, resources not going there, when you get governments not behaving well um, uh, in different parts of the world, it can be very discouraging, very, very discouraging. Um, you know, um, the other day I was looking at the figures from Bangladesh and um, 53 million people in Bangladesh live below $2 a day, 53 million people, over 53 million people. Because of COVID-19, half of that, 50% of those people, right, um, have now don't have any income. Technically, you can say they're now destitute. They don't have any income. Um, so how do you, at a personal level, um, I go back to my faith. I go back to my own support system. Um, I think at the organizational level, uh, one, you are surrounded by other people who help you, who lift you up, you know. Um, and uh, we can't over, we should not over- underestimate the power of being, of working together with like-minded people who believe in the same things that you believe in, in terms of trying to um, fight this injustice. And, um, but, you know, uh, we are there also to do a job. And so it's really important that we don't let our entire organization and our staff feel overwhelmed. And so how we do that is we plan well. We plan and we we are honest about the resources that we have and what we are able to do. So we are not in any way uh, going to solve the world's problems. But we know that when we stand side by side with supporters, we stand side by side with partners, with churches, with other institutions, with multilaterals, with government, with other international NGOs working to do exactly the same thing, then when you look at the scale of that, you get you get um you get the energy that says you know what uh maybe just maybe we'll be able to get over this the other thing is i think it's always important to remind ourselves of those that have been resilient where you have been successful. Um, and it's interesting that you, uh, in that original talk, I talk about Betha in Malawi. Uh, I remember that she actually lives in a place called Chikwawa District. And when Cyclone um, Idaya hit, uh, that district was devastated. That was after my visit to Malawi. And, um, and I asked the team to go and check on her and to check on Agnes and that community. And they, they said to me that um, because of the work that we had done with them beforehand in terms of savings, you know, opening accounts with banks, they were able to go back to those savings that they had in the bank and to start to rebuild. They didn't immediately, you know, they didn't they were not destitute, so to speak. So um, when you listen to that, where you see stories of change and success, it helps you and gives you confidence that if we continue doing what you're doing, um, uh, we will get there eventually. I think giving up is not an option. You mentioned already what governments might do sometimes can be less than helpful. And I'm thinking about the 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 present day, we're talking to you in a very strange summer where uh, the pandemic is um, ravaging the, the global community. And so that's a, a massive impact on Christian aid and its work. 
we've just heard that our own government here has taken the decision to combine uh, a department that you've probably worked very, very closely with for very, very many years, the Department for International Development, with the Foreign Office. And I just wondered if you've got any comment on that, because does that feel like you're really battling uh, almost a double whammy uh, within a very short period of time as an organisation that, that might make it very difficult to do the good work that you're doing? Yes, um, thanks, Um well, I, I think my 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 voice and my views on this, I think, have been um, have been quite vocal on, uh, I guess, my disappointment on that announcement that was made by government. I think I think you're right that um, it's a it's a it's a double whammy, and uh, we've described it as Christian aid. We've described it as a as an act of political vandalism, and um, but I would probably go further and say it's like a slap in your face. It's interesting that it comes at a time when, uh, whether you're talking to the IMF, whether you're talking to the World Bank, the UN, different governments, EU, right across the world, right? We are almost all on standstill because of uh, the threat and reversal of development gains and the threat to global health. Right. We are looking at people struggling as they have never struggled before. They're struggling here at home in the UK uh, with just trying to stay safe, uh, trying to save lives. And we are a country, uh, the UK is a country that has got very developed, well-developed systems in terms of healthcare provision, in terms of uh, systems and, uh, and support mechanisms and including uh, resources. Um, so at a time when the world really needs uh, support, and when I say the world, at a time when the poorest people, those in really extreme circumstances, really need us, that's the time when the government announces that they're going to start a reshuffling of uh, the the very heart of how this this country, the UK, supports those poor, the poor, those in poorest communities. Where I think that the timing is a little bit perverse is that it was smack bang in the middle of Black Lives Matter. You know, a time when we we the injustice, the racial injustice um, around, and I'm not talking about just the violence. I'm talking about the fact that the face of poverty is um, a black or brown person. Wherever you go in the world, the face of poverty is of a darker-skinned person. That's the injustice that there. So when you take that and you take COVID-19 and the impact, and you ask yourself, why would the government of this country, with the type of values that this country has, the type of work and history that this country has, make that announcement on that particular during this particular time. And uh, I'm still hoping that somehow the government will hear the outcry uh, on this issue and um, and reverse their decisions. Just to finish with, Amanda, can I ask you about music? I know that you love music, and I guess that that might connect with your sense of resilience and hopefulness. And you talk particularly about gospel music, uh, that you could sing and listen to gospel music all day. I think I read that somewhere. So... How does that gospel music, how does that congregational singing, how does that help you? 
The first thing that I have to say is that you're absolutely right. It's true. I love listening to gospel music. I really do. It just lifts me up. Um, I was um, brought up in a home where my mother and my dad would sing at the slightest um, provocation, you know, um, and they would sing together uh, in the kitchen while walking outside. And so I just love it. But I can't sing. I really cannot. Um, and uh, it's a, it's really embarrassing because in congregational singing, I sort of open my mouth and move my lips, but nothing really comes out. The only time I sing is when I'm by myself in the kitchen um, and nobody uh, can, can complain. Um, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist uh, and we love a cappella without instruments. You know, we just, uh, I love the harmonizing of voices, the black mambazo, when they come together and sing. I just think to myself, the angels might stop. They, they probably stop and say, you know, let's listen to this. This music for me connects me to two key uh, parts of my life. It connects me to my heritage in terms of my mother's people, my father's people, and where I am rooted. And it connects me to my faith. Um, so, uh, because, you know, when you pray, sometimes, you know, I pray in English and, um, and I've spoken English from when I was a little girl, but it's different when I go into my language and I cry to God. And that's what that music does. You know, I love listening to the music, not just in English. I love listening to music in Shona, in Nyanja, in Bemba, in some of those languages. I think that when God hears us sing, right? Um, we are praying several times over, you know, because you sing and um, no matter how out of tune it is, I would like to believe that God hears me and hears the heart. And does your love for music also connect with your fight for justice? I would, I would not, let me not finish without actually talking about the whole issue of racial justice. And I think it's a good note for me maybe to, to, to end on that just like music is part of a heritage um, for people from different parts of the world, right? Um, it conveys, I think, the struggle that we've gone through. And uh, uh, these last three weeks, when we talk about George Floyd um, from now onwards, I think for me, it is the culmination uh, of uh, the lived experiences of people like me, right? Uh, I was saying to my team the other day, I said, you know what? Sometimes I go into shops, supermarkets, and they ask me, would you like a receipt? And what my answer would I would like to give is, no, actually, it's okay, because I don't think that it's necessary. It's just a waste of paper, and then it goes into the conversation around climate change, right? So my the my instinct is to say, no, I don't need the receipt. But my lived experience says, take the receipt, Amanda, because you know what? As a black person, you're more likely to be stopped by the door and asked, you know, uh, whether what you've bought, you have a receipt for, right? So, you know, and those things, that's my lived experience of um, what I see as uh, not quite looking at me as a person of worth dignity the same as everybody else that you know i'm always having to prove myself beyond what others um who are non-black 
are having to go through. And so, you know, Black Lives Matter has come at a good time in terms of that consciousness. And I was arguing with a friend of mine. I said, young people are saying no to injustice, you know, and I think they're putting us to shame, right? They're saying no to the injustice that we have uh, up until now probably lived with and just said, we gave up and said, well, this is the way it is. And they're saying, you know what? No not injustice. And so uh, I'm hoping that, you know, this is a, a rally call to all of us, that it is time that we took the word dignity and respect and made it um, into real life experience for all of us. Thank you. That's an amazing place to finish. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Catherine. And thank you, Paul. So that was another amazing conversation with Amanda and we said at the beginning that we were really nervous about interviewing her and she said that she was nervous too. What are your takeaways? What are your reflections from that conversation, Catherine? Yeah, I mean, what an incredible person. She's the kind of person that when, when I hear about all that she's achieved in her life, I think, man, I, I watched too much TV. It felt to me like there was such a consistency and an integrity and a patience and a passion about her. She was as if she was headed in one direction and there was nothing that was going to swerve her off course. It was kind of startling when she started, you know, during this whole pandemic, we've we've had to work from home. And to us, I mean, to us at Greenbelt, that's just been cracking open our laptop and having a comfy chair. But when she when you think about the effects that that has on remote villages that Christianaid are working with, where they don't have power, they don't have connectivity. So... And they don't have basic things such as hand washing. Like how, imagine being faced with a pandemic such as COVID and not being able to wash your hands. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things we take for granted, aren't there? And I was struck that there were so many aspects of the work that Christian Aid's partners do around the world that absolutely requires them to go and see and be present with people. You know, so as well as the challenges of trying to be in contact with each other when power and connectivity and broadband are a huge challenge, there's also that issue that, you know, if the refugees in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh need water, you need to go and check, have they got the water? Is it clean? Is it coming through? You have to be there. And I think I was really struck with that, you know, aid and development work that in a way that can't be socially distanced. It can't be stopped. It can't be furloughed. It has to continue if people are going to live and flourish and survive. I thought it was also really interesting when we asked her about, you know, how does she cope with the fact that there is so much need in the world and there is so much seeming bad news? in the world how does she stop herself and the organization from being overwhelmed and she talked a little bit about how she has to avoid consuming too much bad news and that that brought me right the way back to what you were saying Catherine at the top of the podcast about the news and about how it can be overwhelming yeah and how also to focus on what is happening the good things that are happening because i think that especially during times that we're isolated like this and that you know your the mainstream media or your social platforms are your only source of connection and news you can just keep hearing about how bad things are 
and that can get you deflated when actually there is so much good stuff happening around the world i think people are on the whole good and people want to help each other that's our natural instinct is to help each other and that's happening all around us it's just we need to focus in on that to make us feel like things are possible and that we should keep going and that this world is wonderful you know not all wonderful but in terms of the human spirit and the resilience that humans have. Amanda said that one of the things exactly that keeps her going is remembering stories of success that they have been involved in, that she has been involved in. So she kept on bringing us back to Betha in Malawi, who Christian Aid and Diffid have helped over the years as part of her community. And she was able to say that, you know, when Hurricane Adaya hit Malawi so badly that... Betha and her community were able to stand against that uh, natural disaster because of the, the work and the resilience that had been built in the community through the work that Christian Aid was able to do. And so in hard times, uh, Amanda's able to hold on to that as a positive story, that think that change is possible, that these things can be better. Paul, one of the things that really stuck with me from this talk is when Amanda said that wherever you go in the world the face of poverty is a black or brown skin person and it was such a simple way of saying that but such a powerful observation that I don't think that I had actually ever made before consciously. That stopped me in my tracks too um, I'm ashamed to say almost because it feels sort of obvious and hard-hitting when you hear it but it's it's something that I'd not really thought too much about and I think that she was very very strong on connecting this moment where uh, the government have collapsed Diffid into the foreign office and her concerns around that saying why have they chosen to do it at this moment at this moment in this summer when Black Lives Matter is a, once again such a resurgent and an urgent movement and issue for our times. I'm particularly trying to engage and listen to stories coming from the black community and there's been a few stories and normally they're small stories which have just shook me and got to me in a way I guess because I'd never seen or realized or noticed how ingrained racism is throughout the world and then when Amanda talks about how when she's leaving the supermarket and the cashier asks her do you want your receipt that's not a simple question for her and it's not a simple answer because what she wants to say is no save paper that's probably what I would do but she thinks I'm more likely to be stopped by the security guard and asked to see my receipt. Yeah, that was astonishing, wasn't it? And I thought, you know, when in my life have I ever had to make a consideration like that? It's a seeming small story, but actually that's how big the problem is, isn't it? That if every aspect of your life requires that additional level of, oh, hold on, I better think about this because this might happen. It's just it beggars belief because we're not actually organizing a real physical festival in a field this summer too soon too soon sorry sorry i must stop myself 
we're not getting the same level of people contacting us to say, how dare you? How can you possibly? Um, I mean, but we are, it has to be said, around our engagement with the Black Lives Matter movement and our trying to lean into that with our digital programming and content, we have had people contact us with the classic, the absolute classic. I think people are saying, how can you say Black Lives Matter when all lives matter? Yeah, that is what people are saying. And I guess we would want to just refer those people to listen to Amanda's story about the consideration that she has to make as the CEO of a global NGO, as a really, really amazing, amazing woman who has lived her life in the voluntary sector and in service to others, that she has to make that consideration to keep her receipt when she leaves a shop. I guess that story says it all in terms of why Black Lives Matter is an urgent matter. I think in this moment, in this summer, given everything that happens, it felt like a real privilege to have that chance to just chat with Amanda as, as, as an amazing woman uh, leading an amazing organisation and uh, as a woman of colour uh, struggling for justice in her own life as well as through the organisation that she leads. She feels like a trailblazer. So anyway, our time is over. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Somewhere to Believe in. We'd also love to know what you think. So remember to let us know your favourite Greenbelt moments and what you're going to miss this year and just any other comments that you want to make about what we've been talking about over these last couple of episodes. And there's a few ways to do that, Paul. Yeah, you can let us know your comments on Greenbelt social media channels, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We're also live streaming on YouTube, so you can always get in touch with us there as well. And of course, leave your review views and comments on the podcast platforms that you're using we've also got an email address set up where you can email us directly about this podcast and its content stbi at greenbelt.org.uk and please if you've enjoyed what you heard then share it with anyone you might think would be interested as well and we hope you'll be back for next week's episode when we'll be talking to danny dawling about pretty much everything from the british empire to global pandemics yeah that was an amazing conversation we dialed him up and we effectively just drew up a chair and listened he was like a wise old uncle who'd come to visit for christmas who who just knew everything so i'm looking forward to that episode yeah he answered everything that i needed answered in my life really anyway that's it from us for this episode thank you so much for listening Thank you again to Amanda Cozy Makwashi for talking to us and to Daisy Wedger for producing uh, this podcast for us. We'd also like to say a big thank you to Lee Baines from the band Lee Baines the Third and the Glory Fires for letting us use his brilliant track, which you've been hearing throughout this podcast. The track is called I Can Change. Uh, there's a few more thank yous and they go out to our wonderful volunteer recorded talks team, especially Josh and Kat, who are doing a lot of work behind the scenes on editing these podcasts. It's great to work with volunteers in this summer when we can't make a physical festival. Festival. And also to Paul Truman, who helps us out on the staff team with copywriting and helping us get our language right. Thanks, Paul. Thank you.